0: Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville, also streaming worldwide at ForwardRadio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host. Today's topic is It's Not the Cow, It's the How. We'll be separating truth from fiction when it comes to livestock. Now, if someone is a vegan or a vegetarian and they do that for health reasons or for Um, ethical reasons, have no quarrel with that whatsoever. Those are personal choices and it's entirely, entirely beyond the scope of this message. But when we're talking about ecology, it is in the realm that affects us all. When we talk about ecology, it's in the realm of objectivity. So I'm going to be talking about the ecological aspects of livestock farming. Last week I featured an article in the journal nature food and the title of the article is global greenhouse gas emissions from animal-based foods are twice those of plant-based foods now if you read an article like that uncritically you're thinking wow Animal-based foods have twice the greenhouse gas emissions of plant-based foods. It must be that animal-based foods are worse, and therefore we should eat much less animal-based foods and focus instead on plant-based foods. And if we have to fool our taste buds along the way and have uh, impossible burgers and what some call fake meats, then wow, that's what we need to do. But I went through and I pointed out how this article, from beginning to end, really does not say anything about the management practices that separate good livestock management from bad livestock management. It just lumps them all in together, and I've been trying to think of a a logical fallacy. It might be the logical fallacy of overgeneralization. And that that word feels right and sounds right to me because they are making a generalization, but the definitions of overgeneralization are such that when you make a decision based on limited data, and I think that is going on here because a generalization is made on the basis of normative practices without regard to best practices. So the best livestock practices, and and I have seen these, and I have a peer-reviewed article here that I will share with you in a minute, but the best practices of livestock management are such that carbon is drawn down into the ground, and water pollution is prevented, and biodiversity is uh, enriched. But that kind of critical thinking doesn't come into play among those who just want to generalize and extrapolate based on current norms. So I'm going to ask and answer a few questions just in the way of introduction. And I'm not going to prove each one, but I am going to tell you my conclusions and thereby reveal what I think is the faulty logic Among those who try to say that livestock is all bad all the time. So here they are. Is is livestock responsible for greenhouse gas emissions? You bet. The answer is yes. But are crops also responsible for greenhouse gas emissions? The answer is yes. Are both responsible for needless greenhouse gas emissions on a large scale? The answer is yes. Could both crops and livestock be restructured to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? The answer is yes. So far we're seeing an equivalence between livestock and crops, assuming the truth of what I'm saying. We're not quantifying anything, but we're establishing some basic propositions that both are responsible for greenhouse gas emissions on a large scale and needless greenhouse gas emissions on a large scale, and the word needless there suggests that we could change our policies and change our practices so that there are not so much greenhouse gases from either crops or livestock. Does livestock produce water pollution? Usually. The answer is yes, but it's also true that crops produce water pollution, usually. Does the raising of livestock produce, uh, are we using GMO or genetically modified crops for livestock? Yes, but we're using genetically modified crops for other things such as, you know, junk food (laughs) and corn ethanol. And one of the main problems with genetically modified crops is that corn and soy are genetically modified so as to be tolerant of roundup or glyphosate which is a major health problem it has been linked to cancer and it is a major source of water pollution and this is both crops and livestock are, are responsible for this we could go on but you know both livestock and crops are done in such a way as to be a serious burden to biodiversity and both crops and livestock are Uh, raised in such a way as to uh, produce serious soil erosion. It need not be that way in either case, but it is. So what we've got going on here is an organized campaign to discredit the raising of livestock for things that are also true of crops, also known as plant-based foods. So when this article in Nature Food says global greenhouse gas emissions from animal-based foods are twice those of plant-based foods, I, I have no reason to question the truth in that headline, but I question the implication. I question what they are suggesting from a policy standpoint. Another question to be asked is, that's very important, is are we deforesting to graze cattle? So we hear that there's so much deforestation that's going on for the pastures on which the cattle are going to graze, and also deforestation for the food, the corn, to grow the cattle. But deforestation is occurring for every conceivable reason. I have a friend in Ecuador who is restoring a rainforest with a farm, and her environment is a place where cattle should not be grazed. But yet cattle are grazing there because what they do is that they go in and they buy up land and they deforest for the timber. And the way they pay the people that are doing the work is they say, after we're done with this, you can have some land to grow cattle on. And you have these poor, pitiful, pathetic cattle that are trying to graze on land that is not growing grasses that are suitable for them. Meanwhile, the forest is gone because of the timber industry. Not because of the cattle industry, but because of the timber industry, because the cattle are not going to, you know, it's not going to be a real profitable business. And you're just taking advantage of poor people. And people say, oh, you cleared this land to graze cattle. No, you didn't. You cleared the land to get the timber. So what we could be doing and should be doing is using cattle to restore, to, to, turn, to turn deserts into grasslands. We could do that. I know people who have been doing this for years and years, and that's another conversation, a side road that we can't get into right now. But most of the deserts of the world are man-made. I'm going to say man-made. I'm going to use a gender-specific term and say these deserts are man-made. So most deserts of the world are man-made, and they and they are, many of them are former grasslands. Grasslands co-evolved, with grazing animals. Grasslands co-evolved with ruminants. There used to be millions of ruminants covering the grasslands of the world before humans became a dominant species. The grasslands of the world are adapted for heavy periodic grazing by ruminant animals, that is cattle, sheep, and goats and also the, the those are the domestic ruminants domesticated ruminants but also deer antelopes etc why is this relevant because what we could be doing today is using domesticated grazing animals to mimic the animal impact the positive animal impact that used to exist before humans came along and removed all the removed the natural habitat of the massive numbers of ruminants that used to graze all over on every continent of the world and that my friend is why when some of us assert that livestock can have a positive impact we're not just blowing smoke We're resting our assertions and our claims on solid science and solid understanding of the ecology of grasslands. I'm going to introduce you in a minute to an article that has this sentence that I want to go ahead and read since we're talking about grasslands and savanna. It says grasslands and savanna ecosystems around the world co-evolved with grazing ruminants and fire let me div- uh, define ruminant it is includes mammals it, that include cattle ruminants are mammals that include cattle all domesticated and wild bovines it includes goats sheep giraffes deer gazelles and antelopes so when I say ruminants, think domesticated animals like cattle, sheep, and goats, and also think about um, deer, gazelles, antelopes, giraffes. But you know the land animals are not a burden to the land. They don't have to be. In nature, animals were not a burden to the land. The land was adapted to the animals, and the animals were adapted to the land and the land and the animals were adapted to the ecosystems in which they evolved. We humans have removed those ecosystems, and so it doesn't do any good to say we should just go back to nature. Yes, in many ways we need to go back to nature, but nature needs our help because we have eliminated the natural ecosystems and we need to use our supposed intelligence to mimic the impact that animals including ruminants used to have so here is a peer reviewed article that says a little bit about how that should work this peer reviewed article has the nerve has the nerve to suggest that ruminants, including cattle, those evil animals' cattle, but this article has the nerve to suggest that ruminants could have a role in reducing the carbon footprint of agriculture in North America. So on the one hand, you have an article that says, ooh, uh, animal-based foods have twice the carbon footprint of of plant-based foods. And on the other hand, you say, wait, ruminants can have a role in reducing the carbon footprint of agriculture in North America. And the idea that must be grasped is that both plant-based agriculture and animal-based agriculture need not be inherently burdensome. It's like, you know, humans. Humans need not be an an inherent burden to the land that we occupy. We are, almost all of us are, but we need not be. So we need to explore ways in which human activities can be a benefit to the land that we occupy. And we need to explore ways in which each person can be a net benefit instead of each person being a net burden. Now, I'm going to be reading some quotes from the article. It's by W.R. Teague. He's at Texas a and Richard Teague, originally from Rhodesia. And this article has about nine co-authors, one of whom is Peter Bick, who is from Louisville, currently resides and works in Arizona. But Peter Bick is maker of a documentary film called Carbon Cowboys. So the article says some scientists have suggested that reductions in global ruminant numbers could make a substantial contribution to climate change mitigation goals and yield important social and environmental co-benefits. But the value of such an option must be assessed within the larger context of all agricultural practices and geographic situations. In other words, we're not going to broad brush all ruminants and say they're all bad, and therefore we have to reduce their numbers. Think of the millions of, of bison that used to roam northward and southward in North America. Those bison were not a burden. They were a benefit to their environment. It, one way of looking at it is that species tend to survive when they are a benefit to their environment because when they benefit their environment then their environment benefits them. So it used to be that ruminants benefited their environment. How is that possible? Let me share with you the conclusions from the Richard Teague article entitled The Role of Ruminants in Reducing Agriculture's Carbon Footprint in North America. Conclusion number one. We propose that with appropriate regenerative crop and grazing management, ruminants not only reduce overall greenhouse gas emissions, but also facilitate provision of essential ecosystem services, increase soil carbon sequestration, and reduce environmental damage. In other words, yes, like anything, there's going to be greenhouse gas emissions every time you and I exhale. We exhale carbon dioxide. That's a greenhouse gas emission. So there's always going to be some of that in any human activity and in any biological activity. But grazing ruminant, according grazing ruminants according to Teague at all conclude that grazing ruminants can increase soil carbon sequestration that means we're taking carbon dioxide out of the air and putting it in the ground putting it in the soil the soil other than the oceans the soil is the single biggest bank of carbon and it's the single biggest potential bank of carbon conclusion number two our assessment shows that globally greenhouse gas emissions from domestic ruminants represent 11.6% of total anthropogenic emissions while cropping and soil associated emissions contribute 13.7%. In other words, according to their analysis, ruminants contribute less to greenhouse gas emissions than crops, but the primary source of these greenhouse gas emissions is soil erosion. So if you can reduce erosion, you can reduce the primary source of emissions associated with grazing ruminants. Why is erosion a source of greenhouse gases? Because erosion is an indication of declining soil quality. Erosion is an indication that the soil has been Degraded. You can degrade soil in a lot of ways. You can degrade soil with bad forestry. You can degrade soil with tillage. You can degrade soil with chemical fertilizers. You can degrade soil with herbicides. You can degrade soil with compaction from roads and development, etc. And whenever you do that, you've got the soil oxidizing. That means carbon is coming out of the soil into the atmosphere. Degrading soils oxidize carbon. The carbon is traveling in the wrong direction. The task is not to vilify any one category of food, but to make sure that each category of food is managed in such a way as to send carbon in the right direction, out of the atmosphere, into the soil. Conclusion number four, permanent cover of forage plants is highly effective in reducing soil erosion and ruminants consuming only grazed forages under appropriate management result in more carbon sequestration than emissions. Translating this into English, this means that forage means grass feeding. Almost all cattle are grass-fed, only about 3% are grass-finished. That means they're fed grass their entire lives, including the last few months when their compatriot, their, the, the other cattle, are being fed grain. And this has to be done, uh, it has to be done intentionally, it has to be done carefully. I grew up in Kentucky. Kentucky is the, is the biggest cattle state west of biggest cattle state east of the Mississippi River. There have always been a lot of cattle in Kentucky, especially after the decline of tobacco. Most of the cattle grazing I've ever seen was continuous grazing. That means those cattle were not being rotated. They were being fed grain. Grain is artificially cheap, because of artificially cheap fossil fuels and and other subsidies. But 97% of cattle are grown in a way as to reduce, as as to degrade the soil. So what they're saying here is that if you manage the rotation properly, then it's going to store carbon in the ground. Therefore, whenever carbon is being stored, in the ground, that means it's coming from the atmosphere, it's going in the right direction. Conclusion number five from the peer reviewed article by Richard Teague Incorporating forages and ruminants into regeneratively managed agroecosystems can elevate soil organic carbon, improve soil ecological function by minim- minimizing the damage of tillage and inorganic fertilizers, and biocides, and enhance biodiversity and wildlife habitat. So these are the conclusions of an article that says, hey, ruminants could be part of the solution to reducing North America's carbon footprint. Not part of the problem, but part of the solution. By incorporating ruminants into regeneratively managed agro-ecosystems. So, what does agro-ecosystem mean? It means a farm that is ecological. It means an ecosystem that is a farm. Such things do exist. It's not how things are done in the mainstream, but the mainstream needs to change, partly by changing public policy. And this is one thing that The renewable energy crowd, they're just not not focused on this. They're not talking about this. There's lip service from time to time. But it doesn't get nearly the emphasis and it doesn't get nearly the funding of these human-made devices that are supposed to somehow lower our carbon footprint in ways that I can't quite figure out. I say we need to reduce our energy consumption from all types of energy by 75%, and that can be done in a way so as not to be a burden on the average person. The only people that are going to have to change very much is the people who have way too much power to begin with. But that's another conversation. Back to ruminants. Ruminants can elevate soil organic carbon. They can improve soil ecological function. In other words, the soil becomes more of a functioning ecosystem that captures rainfall, that grows grasses, that not only captures the rainfall but filters the water so that the water is not flooding, so you don't have polluted water flooding into the waterways. It also says here that regeneratively managed agro-ecosystems can can uh, minimize the damage of, uh, how, do, how do you damage soil? Let's minimize the damage of, of soil. Let's, let's incorporate ruminants into agro ecosystems in a way that minimizes the damage that normally comes through tillage, it normally comes through inorganic fertilizers, and it normally comes through biocides. Biocides include herbicides, herbicides include glyphosate, there's about a all, near. There's about two thirds or three fourths of a pound of glyphosate for every person in the United States. There's something on the order of 250 million pounds of glyphosate applied every year in the United States. Nearly a pound per person. Some, you know, the better part of a pound. Two thirds, three fourths of a pound per person in glyphosate. And we're not talking about this because why? Because the people that sell these chemicals own Congress. They own the Republicans and they own the Democrats in the same degree. There's not one party that is better than the other when it comes to being owned by agribusiness corporations that get to uh, that get to establish agricultural policy for their own benefit. That's why doing a whole lot of good for the climate is not expensive. And that's the problem. It's not expensive enough. If something is expensive, then somebody is getting paid to do the job. Renewable energy is such the rage because it is adequately expensive. It is sufficiently expensive that People get paid to do the job and the people that are getting paid to build the windmills and build the solar panels and build the electric cars are able to influence Congress by giving to campaigns and by hiring lobbyists and by giving to super PACs and by owning each party equally. I've got about a minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. Why? Is it common knowledge that livestock is bad? Because for the time being, we don't have a real democracy. We have a sham democracy. We have political theater that is run by slogans and by tribalism. So, this the plant based diet is a slogan that has little reflection of reality that has little correlation to reality, but it survives because it keeps us divided. What the ruling elites do best over the course of time is to keep people divided based on shallow, empty slogans that get us divided into teams, hopefully only two teams so that anybody who is not on your team is on the other team and they're the bad guys. Whoever's not with us is against us. Oh, look at the time. That's all for now. Bye.